You are listening to Sound and Process. This is episode 14 with Rodrigo Constanzo. I guess 2007 was the first time I did something like that. So that was, that was quite a while ago and, and I very much liked it. And it was a part of my creative thinking very early on. And in fact, that, that recording, it's the first one that I felt like my creative brain had come online. Like I was like, okay, this is, a, this is something that's unique and different. And I, I feel it's bigger than me, but I had a hand in making it. And it's, I found it really, really beautiful. Like, it was the first thing that I was like, holy shit, like, this is awesome. The piece we're listening to now is, as Rodrigo just described, one of his first aha moments, a naturally derived cut-up version of Bach's prelude in F minor number 12. For those who don't know Rodrigo's work, this piece from 2007 is hugely indicative of the software he'd eventually build four years down the line, the widely loved playable performance patch named The Party Van. Since 2011, Rodrigo has built many more bits of software, ranging from dynamic VeraSpeed loopers to huge leaps in concat resynthesis. But at the core of these tools is an aesthetic that can only be described as... Lo-fi, broken, digital stuff. And again, this is before I, I really knew Nick Collins' work. At that point, I did know, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Yasuano Tone, the guy who does all these wounded CDs so you, where you physically fuck up a CD and, and play in a certain way. So I was aware of his work, but I wasn't aware of Nick Collins' work. And things with tape players for, man, like maybe five, six years, I used to always have one of those little um, mini dictaphones in my pocket and I would go around and I would sample stuff like literally just record little bits of weird sound onto tape and for a long time I didn't really do much with them I just enjoyed going around and sampling this way and then when I started doing this drum set with stuff type performance <clears throat> among the things that I had on as like far in my bric-a-brac was a dictaphone that was just beyond the floor that I could have it play either acoustically or into a guitar pickup which ends up amplifying it but it became this sort of living sample library that had everything I'd sampled all to that point, but I'd still sample things onto it. And it became, I don't know, it was a, it was a part of what I did, just this sort of lo-fi tape sampling. So I think that sound, and I, I'm not going to say workflow, because I actually don't, I don't do that kind of workflow anymore. Like um, that kind of hardware-based field recording-ish sampling isn't part of my creative process now, but the the sounds and the textures and the, I guess, artifacts of that are to a certain extent. Like, I, I do like the sound of how shit that sounds. Rodrigo is a seasoned percussionist and improviser, which directly influences his approach to designing software interactions. Through careful consideration of the needs of the performer, he builds software that can easily be manipulated through gestures akin to playing acoustic instruments. Whenever I perform, and it's been this way since the beginning, I have my laptop closed and my screen black. Unless for a very specific reason I need to see it, but this is usually what I'm playing with other people. But for the most part, I don't interface with the computer as an object when I perform. And for most of that time, I've actually just interfaced with monom stuff. So it's usually been buttons and knobs. But even towards that, that decision was very deliberate early on and that I knew that when performing, I 
I don't have the brain space to micromanage stuff during performance because I'm playing with uh, an acoustic instrument typically. So interface has always been a weird one in that how do I, I mean, there's stuff like that I, I care about for me, but then in releasing software for other people, yeah, I know other people will have other concerns, but for me, exposing enough hooks that I can be musically useful with it with uh, minimal micromanaging input from me. So not necessarily minimal input for me. So there could be a lot of input for me, but it could be audio analysis based, which is one of my favorite ways of working with that. So what I expose as interface tends to be conceptually minimal. I need to be able to have it move along and have it do things, have it respond often to audio analysis, specifically onsets, loudness, brightness, things that are tend to be um, plentiful and varied and drum stuff. But at the same time, I like making pretty interfaces. And it's one of these places where hobby and art intersect for me. So I, I think even if I wasn't a musician, I would probably geek out about, you know, and, and try to make these things look and, and communicate as ergonomically as possible. The combined one and Party Van 2 are big, are big pushes in that. And it's something I've gotten a lot of help from, like Jason from the Lions Forum has been super, super generous in terms of design stuff and, and specifically color and, and just layout and spacing that I've always found design stuff fascinating. But knowing that, you know, with a finite amount of time in one's life, I'm not going to be a designer, but I do enjoy it and I, I like playing around with that. But with Combine, I spent a long time trying to refine how to engage with those ideas. And even with my very, the very first, like the currently publicly uh, released version of that, which is I think from 2011, a big impetus of, was to make that accessible. So the tools that were available to make that kind of resynthesis at the time were complicated as shit. And to, that's actually still the case now. So if you want to engage with that kind of concat resynthesis, you have to get into specific versions of stuff and, and you have to go through a very, very steep learning curve. And I didn't like that idea. So my, my first footsteps into that world were to try to make that accessible. So even very early on, I, I tried paring that down. But I think with the most current, the, the current version of it, which isn't fully publicly released yet, is a maturation of that idea, like trying to distill that down to the absolutely most legible way that one can engage with what is a pretty conceptual endeavor like it, it's at least a, a one paragraph explanation as to what what the shit is happening like you have to understand that there's databases and audio like it, it's not just like oh this is doing a thing although when you turn it on it does a thing like it, it's already sonically doing stuff for you but the interface there mattered a lot in terms of eligibility to make this accessible to other people exposing enough hooks and the right hooks and the right parameters with the right weightings and, and macro combinations to make that a controllable, usable thing. I mean, to a certain extent, there's a like a relationship with with systems, which I think can still be very musical, and um, but I think it's a harder thing to pull off. So, for example, my my entry into modular was very very delayed, and only really when when Peter Blaster started making stuff like someone that I, I like the sounds that he was making, I was like okay, because I, I very much like Brian's stuff, but it, all, all of Brian's modules are system oriented, and system stuff I can I can do with the computer, so th that didn't draw me in. It was the sounds that drew me in. Um, but I think 
yeah, with with modern stuff, it's very easy. I mean, it's 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 built to not be fast. Like connections are are molasses slow, and that's like modularity comes at a cost, and it, it's the cost of time. A friend of mine, he has a gigantic modular setup, but he uses it uh, in a composed context. So he'll make sounds and he'll record them, and then he'll repurpose them. And I think that's a good way around that. But I think there's a self awareness that I'll I'll maybe even attach to. To put it in the context of, of, of a gig, I th- when I did my first solo drum performance, uh, I was very nervous before it because at that point I had done, I played with a lot of other people. I had done a lot of solo guitar stuff with, with pedals and weird things. And, you know, I, I wasn't a stranger to performing or performing alone, but most other things I played involved systems that, that were automated. And I, by, I mean that in a very reductive sense. So like, for example, I could create a loop uh, with a pedal, with a guitar, and it will keep playing. Even if it's not just a loop playing on its own, but there's there's processes that begin and carry on. Drums, by their nature, decay very, very quickly. And at the time, anyways, I didn't have any le- sampling things set up with the drums, so there were no automated behaviors. So if I wasn't doing something, nothing was happening. And that was terrifying at first, and I, I wasn't sure how that would work, just because I was so used to the even the the mental space that it takes to like you have a loop, you, you it's it's going on, or you have a system or a sequence or something, and then you have a bit of time to collect your thoughts and prepare the next thing. So even if that mental space to to do a, a pivot is afforded by a process that is automated, uh, in the context of what I was doing at the time, that didn't exist. There was no time to do that unless it was silent which you know which comes with its own aesthetic thing so i'm quite aware of for example playing with multiple people at once and let's say like playing with um uh, these are very simplistic examples but let's say a guitar player playing with a looper the amount of energy it takes to start a process either being audio playback or a sequence of some kind once that process is started takes no more physical or mental overhead to perpetuate meaning that the sonic footprint is now detached from the energy that it took to make it, which can come, uh, if you're not attuned to that, can mean you forget about it, uh, but it's just still going, which maybe there's a time and place for that, but most often it's not the right thing to do. But I think a a less experienced performer in in a real-time context would very easily lose awareness of that automated process because their focus is elsewhere. Like I got this thing going and that's cool. And now I'm, I'm all about this other thing that this other process that's beginning without realizing the, the sonic footprint is just carrying on and on and on. And yeah, modular is, is built for that. Like it's, it's the, the tool to begin processes on its own. Like if you're just in the box. So I think it takes a certain amount of creative playing with to, to circumvent that be it with like interface modules or or very complicated system with, with which one interacts with to supersede that. Rodrigo's work raises questions about virtuosity in experimental and electronic arts. Often, applying a traditional or narrow definition fuels imposter syndrome in new artists. And though Rodrigo has a formal music background, I wondered how much of it informs his work. For a long time, I felt that the reason I was able to do weird music so well is because I was able to do air quotes real music well. And at some point that shifted and I realized that that, that wasn't the case. 
that doing the kind of thing that I was doing was difficult enough that it required and demanded that I, I take it as seriously as I would have, you know, real music, air quotes. So the idea of recycling virtuosity, I guess, in that sense, or, or maybe the, the historical baggage of the wor- what the word virtuosity means as attached to a physical acoustic instrument, perhaps is less useful to me these days, like an integrated musicianship. You know, I'll still practice my rudiments. I don't, I don't practice scales or anything like that, but I'll, I'll, I do practice rudiments. But I think more than anything, I'm, I'm aware of that I'm by no means the, the best drummer or even a very good one. The same thing goes for piano and guitar these days. Um, and similarly, I'm not the best programmer. You know, there, you know, there's much better people at each one of the things that I do. But the thing that I seem to be good at is the thing that interconnects these things. So there's something between these things that, that is actually what I guess the capital V virtuosity would apply to. And it's something that is hard to focus on because I'm aware that, okay, I can, I can buff up my programming chops, which is something I try to do, but that in and of itself isn't really meaningful, you know, and, and I, I work on my rudiments just to get my hands up to snuff. But again, that in and of itself doesn't mean anything either. So what, you know, what does mean the thing and and how can I improve it, that thing? And I don't actually know, you know. (laughs) Rodrigo maintains a fantastic website, which not only houses his videos and software, but a wealth of deep reflections. Many focus on decision-making and performance. And one of my favorites is about the quintessential experimental music set. You know, the one in which the artist goes through their toys and does their cool tricks with them, but doesn't create a meaningful experience for themselves or the audience. If you give somebody like a, a box with a string attached or some kind of unusual instrument, if you give that to a creative person, they're probably going to try to find the most divergent possible thing that they could do with it. It'd be like, okay, here's a thing. And like most people are going to do this, but I, you know, what if I boil it? And I don't know there'd be some kind of divergent thing to approach it, but that in and of itself is magnetic to the obvious thing as well. It's just as obvious as the obvious thing. It's just the inverse of it. So what that means in terms of being a creative person to not just make the obvious, not obvious things, if that kind of makes sense, like not just splattering the walls instead of having the, the, the one thing in the center of the room. I've been working for a lot, uh, many years with like a, a microphone on a snare drum and feedback and friction. And at the start of that, at least I was very exploratory developing and, and kind of mapping out all the possible sounds of that. But then in any given performance, it's not necessarily a catalog of all possible sounds with this thing. That in and of itself is meaningless. That's literally noise. It's something I've become aware of that in a lot of things that I do, that they tend to be of limited sound source. There's a, a, a you know quite finite set of sounds. I haven't really unpacked why that is, but there's something about specifically not wanting it to be a cataloging of things. And that's something, even to the extent that it's kind of a pet peeve of mine, like so if I see a performer and I see them kind of going through a routine of, of I can do this, that, and the other, and it, it completely just washes over me. I'm aware of what's happening to the point that I can't really appreciate the sounds of what's happening. I'm aware of the mechanism that what's happening. I'm watching you now do this thing. It's like watching somebody who's naked and starting to put all their clothes on. It doesn't so much matter the clothes they're putting on. It's, I'm, okay, I know it's going to take you... I don't know, what's it take someone to get dressed a minute? <laughs> it's going to be a minute of watching you do these rope procedures that have nothing to do with anything. Over the years, Rodrigo has spent considerable time trying to understand how improvisers improvise. 
The resulting improv analysis framework is broken into four streams. Sonic decisions, decisions of form and transitions, decisions that address instrument ergonomics, technology and performance modalities, and decisions that deal with how sonic materials interact. As a guitar player specifically, there's a lot of pattern-oriented movement because of the nature of the instrument and in that like if you transpose you, you just physically move them down the neck so you end up physically doing similar patterns often whereas on a piano although similar is not the case because once you move to different keys it requires physical renegotiation so the instrument lends itself to physical habits i find so i think uh, one of the things that a guitar player will do once they they feel comfortable enough is to feel comfortable enough to be aware of that and then how to override that so that that was kind of like that. I just mean to seed this in a in a deep instrumental um, way of thinking about habit and rote behavior. So being aware of that and and how to deprogram that is something that I think is instrumentally fundamental um, to how I developed you know over a long time of playing. So even that just that awareness on its own has been useful in to try to deprogram that physically. So I've done these physical movements, not to rely on these physical movements and, and these gestures. But then at the same time, once you get into more complicated relationships, so for example, when there's software, when there's lights, when there's other, other things involved, when it's no longer an instrumental thinking, it become very easy to fall into a behavior. So a gesture that's beyond the physical, so like a, a macro gesture of sorts, um, and how to how to deprogram that or not necessarily deprogram it because there could be a time and place for each one of those programs, but how to be fluid enough to not necessarily rely on rehashing that. Um, and I think for me, some of it is that I think a healthy amount of um, self-awareness and self-reflection is, is definitely useful. So obviously I, I make a bunch of videos, which means I watch a bunch of videos and I write a bunch of words and that feedback loop, I think means something too. So the fact that I'll, I'll, I'll do a performance, I'll have a video, I'll watch it, and then I'll say something about it comes with a certain amount of, of reflection. And each one of those things can shed a certain amount of um, gestural demons, I guess. To help combat these demons, Rodrigo created the DF Score system, a real-time dynamic score that uses a local network to help structure compositional decisions for improvisers. A pool of events like changing loudness or calling for solos would be predefined, but their timing and likelihood of happening are determined algorithmically. Coming up as an improviser, and I have to give a big hat tip to like John Zorn's thinking of, of game pieces and how he approaches that composing for improvisers as an improviser versus composing for improvisers as a composer, which I think they're different things, they're different approaches. And one is, I guess, to to overly simplify it, to like to execute the will of the composer versus to enable situations in which improvisers can improvise. And I definitely appreciate and fall into the latter of those. Um, I Even before I was thinking about it on conceptual level, I did enjoy how those pieces didn't set up specific things to do. It was relationships between people. And then later on, when I was doing more of this myself, I found I gravitated towards that because as a, as a performer, as an improviser, I appreciated that. Like the, the now I can handle, like, don't worry about the now, just give me the, the big, the big picture. That's, that's where contributions can happen from someone outside of time. So in real time, 
there's no issue. Real time is handled. It's the things that are outside of real time that that could use uh, the time traveler is the only person that's useful in a performance in the sense. So someone that had in the past making decisions about now. I started using the term containers, which I, I quite like. Uh, and to a certain extent, I like it better than score, but that's only just for, I mean, that's, it's a, a more boring thing now, but that, that has certain connotations, which I don't know, matter to me less now, but it, it, for a long time, it did have quite negative connotations, but I, I still think it does, but I, I don't feel so strongly about it. But the idea of creating situations in which the now can then happen. And I, I think that's, yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of said it there that that's the most useful thing that I find that I can do out of time to then do in real time. I think I just said the same thing twice, but. <laughs> Though Rodrigo's party van was my first introduction to lines, he and I didn't formally meet until spring of 2016 through a thread called Just Making Things Up. I was performing a lot of improv comedy at the time, and Rod was interested in comparing notes on the intersection between comedic and musical improvisation practices. One of the first conversations we ever had was about comedy improv specifically, and it's something that I find endlessly fascinating. And I think, I mean, I wouldn't say it goes without appreciation, but I think it goes with less appreciation than it should in the context of, of the thinking about musical improvisation. Just because I think language has such grounded context that it means things mean stuff on a fundamental level so the mechanism of what you're doing is more readable whereas musically it can become more vague and you know it is it is at best symbolic and it means you can get away with a lot of things and and you can i don't know that's that's not the right way of measuring it, but it's much easier to tell someone who's a really good comedy improviser versus someone who's a really good musical improviser. You know, I don't I don't like that as a metric, but yeah, the, the words carry meaning. And as much as possible, I try. I mean, particularly across several pieces and across several areas of what I've done, to try to bring that stuff in. So a lot of the game piece thinking draws very specifically on on comedy forms and comedy thinking and. A lot of comedy drills have been points of departure for me in terms of improvisational thinking. And I think it's there's something about playing with more than one person, but maybe less than five. Um, the group mind, which is like a, you know, a big comedy thing, is, 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 has a much bigger potential than any individual. And I think that's, that holds the, true in both comedy and, and in music. I think with music, it becomes more difficult because these intentions are hidden. So let's say the difference between a duo and a trio performance. So as a, as a duo, someone can be, let's say, playing, to use simplistic um, example, someone's playing quietly, and then I come in very loudly. Now, I can be doing that um, to force a, a change in material, or I can be setting up an antagonistic relationship. There's any number of things that could be happening in there. Um, none of them are legible. Um, but we, we kind of carry on and then we have to negotiate that in context. There's no, there's no other thing beyond that. Whereas in, when you have words that can be much clearer, whether what the relationship is intended to be, is it antagonistic? Is it complementary? Is it, um, is it structural? All, all these things can very clearly be read. So I think that's, that's very useful, but it, yeah, it becomes harder with music. I did spend a long time with, so this is with a duo with a friend, Sam Andre, where we did a lot of pieces around this, this mechanism. So we'd improvise a bit and they'd be like, oh man, we tend to do this or we never do that. 
and then we'd have a conversation about this and then just coming up with little drills or etudes to, to affect that and then building that into pieces or little games, which was fun to do because we'd, we'd get really good at that thing. And then eventually um, it would either wrap back around, which was funny, or the piece would no longer be interesting or useful, even musically, and it would it would shed. Like it just became internalized. Um, but there was one of them that was specifically about endings. So we'd start playing and then we'd try to catch each other in endings and we would score points. And we got so good at that game that um, it became more chess-like. And rather than setting up obvious endings, we'd always be one or two moves ahead. And then eventually I realized that we just sounded like a bunch of noobs again, because whenever an ending would come, we just blast right through. So the net result was <laughs> back to zero. But what was happening was, was something else, which was quite funny. One of Rodrigo's through lines is time outside of time. This obviously manifests in his approach to performance and composition, but also in the software he builds. In this last section, Rodrigo will reflect on nonlinear looping, which influenced a Max MSP external he made named Karma, in addition to discussing his soon-to-be-released Max for Live device Combine. Combine is very, very cool. It basically uses real-time analysis of present sound to explore and play back past sound. This is a, a huge academic achievement for sure, but it also helps highlight the wonderful nature of working with electronics to make music, that the technology can ultimately add greater value to the human expression. So I, I had gotten into looping a long time ago, and I, actually I was at, um, at a supermarket and my girlfriend was running to buy something, and I was in the car and some radio station was on, and I guess the DJ had gone to the bathroom or something, but uh, they were playing a CD and it got stuck. And it was just air. And it, I mean, it wasn't some like weird station. It was just like a, one of the generic stations. And it was just stuck on a CD loop. And at first, you know, I found this really funny. And then like after, like I just left it on. And maybe after about a minute or so, it stopped being funny. And it started to become really interesting. And it, I'm, I was reminded at the time, there's like a cage quote where like, if something is boring, play it again. And if it's still boring, play it again, etc. Um, and I, I heard a lot of things. Like I started like like exploring that sound vertically, so that was kind of my first exposure to musical looping that way. And I guess my first exposure to maybe not first exposure, but early exposure to the joys of media fucking up. At the time, I had um, wanted to get more into looping, and this is back when hardware loopers uh, looping time was still at a premium. So like early hardware sampling days, like you couldn't like having something that was more than three seconds was like a big deal and all this kind of stuff. So after doing a bunch of research and saving a bunch of money, I bought an Oberheim Echoplex, which is now the Gibson Echoplex, which is, I guess it's what Battles uses. It's, it's, it's um, a very nice hardware, like it was a rack space thing. <clears throat> and it had, I think about a minute or two minutes, it had a uh, computer memory, like you would put RAM in it. And that's what, what was the, the sampling time. So I maxed it out, but it had a really thick manual and there was a, a really interesting culture around it. So there's a forum that I was on, or it might've been a mailing list at the time for what page called Looper's Delight. And it was, it was really cool to engage with this because people's concerns were, were kind of different. It wasn't, it wasn't really about 
jamming music, although it was very much built for that. It was, I think, as far as I know, the first looper that allowed you to do things like replace to multiply. So, for example, if you record like a two second loop to turn that two second loop into an eight second loop while you layer over it. And for at the time, I found it quite revelatory. And there's one guitar player in particular, I think Andre Lafosse, he epitomized for me at the time the idea of non-linear looping. So he used an echoplex in a quite virtuosic way where nothing was linear, nothing ever happened again. And I found that was a really liberating idea for me where looping wasn't looping. It was, you would record things and then other things would happen. So even if that meant um, very carefully replacing bits of audio or reversing it or changing the like going half speed and reverse during the creation of a loop and all these things that looping wasn't a thing where you would hit record and then hit play and it would play that thing back. So very early in my thinking about looping or sampling and exposure to it, the idea of non-linear was a big part of it. And in, even in my own playing, it was that was a part of it. I and mean, it wasn't as good as some of these people at negotiating that thing because it's a tricky thing to negotiate um, time out of time while you're recording time, you know, and even trying to incorporating this in a group. So for example, uh, so if, if you, if you're just recording with a, a bog standard looper and, and you're playing, uh, going half speed and back to regular speed, half speed and regular speed, and you're doing that, like once every quarter note, the rhythm you're going to get is not that it's going to do a, another rhythm. So you can play in a manner to play what you're playing in real time, knowing that it's going to be bent in time afterwards and this kind of thinking. So, that nonlinear idea ties in very well with the idea of resynthesis because what resynthesis in, in, um, in a big sense is being able to negotiate time, but not through the parameter of time. So with this kind of concat resynthesis, you negotiate time through an audio descriptor. So you can, you can browse time through loudness or you can browse time through brightness. So the corpus itself doesn't exist in time. It's just a, a database of multidimensional moments that you then reference through some other mechanism. Now, the way that I generally do it is in time. So by feeding it things that are happening in time, and it, it's actually something that that's I want to think about quite a bit more because as part of, of when when Combine fully comes out, along with it, I want to have a, a release of sorts. I don't really know what to call it because it wouldn't really be uh, an album, but it's not. Not that either, but I've asked several people, and I'm going to ask more, to contribute a corpus. And each one of these I'm going to include with their name, a a title for it, a description, and all this kind of stuff, basically enabling people to access these other people's sound worlds. Because at this point, it's decoupled from time, so what what happens in the recording is irrelevant. Um, And there's something in there that I find really interesting that I haven't fully unpacked yet. But I think it has to do with, I don't know, someone's sound, specifically not in time, because listening to a corpus on its own doesn't really mean anything. But there's a, a an accessibility, a triviality, which I find conceptually meaningful at a level that I'm not fully aware of yet. Or maybe as a little side story, I had brought... One of the first things I did in my PhD when I found out that there was funding to, to make workshops and make things happen is I brought Peter Blaster over to, to Huddersfield to do a workshop. 
And as part of that, you know, he came and did the workshop. It was a fantastic, great guide. It was, it was an amazing experience overall. But on one of the evenings, we did a gig together. So him and I played. And when we're getting things ready to go, I went to grab, you know, like my go-to instruments. So if I'm just going for like, and I don't know the context, I'll probably take some drum stuff, my old Mr. Grassy, and maybe the melodica. This was my jam at the time. So I was grabbing my old Mr. Grassy, and then he mentioned something. He's like, well, you know, like he's going to be taking some of his stuff. And I realized I'm like, okay, like I'm normally the, the Seattle Lombard guy. But in this context, like he's literally the Seattle Lombard guy. And that, <laughs> um, but the idea that I, I thought those sounds were very much attached to me. I mean, and, and to a certain extent, I, I like using them and in and and the context that I use them. But the sounds in of themselves don't mean anything. Anybody can sound that way. And that's cool. And that should be the case. And I think some people are very precious about that some people are very secretive about the things that they use to get certain sounds or specific sounds or or have uh, very strong feelings about sampling and repurposing and all these things and as much as possible i'd like to value the absolute opposite of that to to share completely to the point of of banality and and one of the first um of these external corpora that I had asked was a friend of mine, Sam Andre, who had done a really amazing recording record, but it was, it was all this really close mic sax stuff where it sounded like machinery because, you know, a sax is a weird instrument on its own, but if you do a lot of air, there's a lot of valves coming out of weird places and it was panned and produced in a way that it sounded amazing, like not like a saxophone at all. Uh, so I had gotten some recordings from him and asked if I could use that and he was all into it. And one of the first recordings I showed him he was like, that's fucking great. It sounds just like me. Like it would have saved him having to do the record. <laughs> and I liked that idea and that it was, it was then super trivial to sound like him. And in certain settings I put it on and it sounds like an algorithmic generator of his album. Like you just run it, go and you'll just have endless versions of his album, but that's great. And I, he thought it was great too. But the thing that I think is that that wouldn't have produced that album in the first place. The And I don't mean that literally that the recording didn't exist, but his creative thinking that led to that exists outside of the sounds. So in being open and share, like with the sounds and the tools, it puts more, value is not the right word, but it puts more emphasis on the thinking that it took to produce those sounds. So in trivializing the sounds, the concepts become more important. So I think the, and I haven't fully unpacked it, but I think some of this idea for me is that is to trivialize sound. But again, th that sounds too simplistic, but it, it's to bring to the forefront the significance of the thinking that led to those sounds. I mean, there's a lot of things in my life that I think could have uh, gone differently, you know, but I think all of those things add up, add up to this, you know, like, uh, I mean, like I spent like a good few years, like playing eight or more hours of a video game a day, you know, and that, that, that would by all measures be considered wasted time. But I don't know. I mean, I think that that helped, you know, I mean, I don't know in what kind of tangible way, but I think all these different life experiences add up to something. You know?
and and had they had they gone a different way that you know it'd be a different thing like i could have yeah life is funny and that's a good part you know Thank you so much for listening to Sound and Process Episode 14 with Rodrigo Constanzo. You can find all of Rod's work on his website, rodrigoconstanzo.com. For more episodes, transcripts, and extras from Sound and Process, please visit soundandprocess.com. As always, Sound and Process is an exploration of the artists of lines. Come join the conversation at llllllll.co. That's adels.co. We'll see you next time.